Welcome to the Heavenly Banquet, where the hungry are filled with good things. I'm Chad. And I'm Charlotte. Chad, what's yeah. on your mind today? Uh, you know, I did a, a recent blog on Lectio Divina. Okay. Um, and we can talk about that some. But kind of behind that, one thing I, I wanted to point out or draw out is this idea that Christian mysticism is rooted in exegesis and biblical interpretation. Mm. Um, you know, I think that term, I don't know, I, I've hesitated to use that term mysticism because it sounds like a bunch of woo, you know, and crystals and tarot cards. I don't know. I don't know what people think, but before I started learning about it, I kind of associated it with a bunch of woo. Okay. You know what I mean? But actually it has deep roots in uh, Christian interpretation, interpretation of the Christian scriptures, going all the way back to the early church. Yeah. And, and the allegorical interpretation. So think about uh, Origen. Um, he he, divide, he uh, classifies interpretations, inter an anthropomorphic uh, classification. So the flesh of the text is the literal interpretation. Mm -hmm. The... Um, I think I'm getting this right. The soul of the text is the moral, you know, uh, you, the morals that you draw out of it. And then the spirit of the text is Christ, essentially. Mm -hmm. Finding Christ in the scriptures. <clears throat> but um, Bernard McGinn, who uh, wrote a fantastic series on the history of Christian mysticism in the Western Church right. sums up Origen's position, which I think was the uh, Origen's understanding of the scriptures and interpretation, which I think mirrors a lot of early um, interpreters. So here's the quote. Scripture in its entirety is nothing else than the logos, the word, teaching each believer in and through the church. The Logos eternally begotten from the Father self-emptying, who in turn emptied himself by taking on flesh, now becomes present and active in us through the uh, meditation of his presence in the inspired words of the scripture. Okay. So, I, so one way I put it was, so in contrast to say fundamentalist approaches to the scripture where they kind of depend on a literal reading in order to find that one acceptable interpretation. Uh -huh. And also, um, unlike historical critical approaches that focus on historical context and forms and sources to draw out possible interpretations, the primary thing that early interpreters were trying to get from the scriptures was the experience of the living present Christ. Mm -hmm. and, and that was what the mystery was. It wasn't their experience of the divine presence. It was the mystery of, of the divine word's presence in the scriptures and sacraments of the church. Right? But, but kind of the point, and, and I, I'm getting this primarily from uh, McGinn, he says, though the role of the written word in Christianity is always secondary to Christ, which we've talked about recently, um, Secondary to Christ conceived of as the Word, the Logos of God, 
The importance of the scripture must be clearly grasped if we wish to understand the nature of Christian mysticism. Because mysticism, especially down to the 12th century, was for the most part directly exegetical in character. Um, the cultivation of immediate consciousness of the divine presence, which is basically a definition of mysticism. Right. The cultivation of immediate consciousness of the divine presence took place within the exercise of reading, meditating, preaching, and teaching the biblical text, often within liturgical or quasi-liturgical uh, context. Mm. And I think that pushes back a little bit on the caricature that Christian mysticism is just um, uh, wrong-headed appropriation of Eastern meditation. Right, you know what right, I mean? Right, right. It's deeply rooted in the scriptures, going all the way back to the earliest centuries sure. of the churches. And so that's, as, as the traditions of mysticism developed, and eventually this idea, and he, he calls it, and I like this phrase, if I can find it, he calls it an exegetical mystical ascent. Okay. Right? Through the scriptures, you experience the real presence of the re resurrected Christ, mm -hmm. the, the Holy Spirit, and the scriptures. Um, and this is how the, and so that eventually develops into Lectio Divina, which is, you know, a four-step process uh, of reading a passage, meditating on it, praying, and ultimately contemplation. So one thing I point out in the, in the blog is what, when I refer to contemplative prayer, that's really the fourth step of the Lectio Divina mm -hmm. process. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, I just thought that was interesting how much is rooted in uh, Scripture. So is it fair to say there's an underlying claim that in order to have, say, an unmediated experience of the divine, I mean, that's how I'm kind of defining mysticism too, an unmediated yeah. experience, but it has to be grounded in a mediated experience right. like through scripture because otherwise how would you even know exactly interesting i mean one way to think of lectio and i say this in the blog is a conversation between i'll use myself between god and myself right i'm reading the scripture not approaching it to analyze the text as if i can you know almost by force pull the word capital w out of it but i let the text speak to me so that the, the word speaks to me. Um, but it's a slow reading. Are you familiar with Lectio? You know, I use just one verse, uh, Matthew 5, 7, out of the Beatitudes, which is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I mean, Lectio, can, you can focus on just that one line. Right. And so we can just talk about the method. So in reading it, you're reading it slowly, um, perhaps out loud. doesn't have to be. But you're just slowly reading and focusing all your attention on the words, chewing on them, so to speak. And read it several times and allow it to speak to you. And that's what gives you content for meditation, which is simply whatever reflections uh, you might have in, as you've slowly read you know, this idea that blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And so what am I thinking? What am I feeling? Maybe I think about, well, what does it mean to have a pure heart? Mm -hmm. Or maybe I begin to miss someone who I knew uh, that to me had a pure heart. Or maybe I just have this desire to see God or whatever. There's, 
the, the possibilities of what can be. There's no wrong meditation. It's just whatever sure. your response to reading that is. Right. And then out of that meditation, I now have things with which to pray. So if if my meditation from from reading that is, you know, what does it what does it mean to have a pure heart? Then that's my prayer. Right. Or if it's me missing someone because that passage reminds, then that's my prayer. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing I say is the words we're using in the prayer aren't quite as in, important as the desire behind it. Mm. Um, and that ultimately, when you move from the prayer to contemplation, it's that bare desire that you're, I, I, it's hard to even explain it, but um, lifting up, I'll just use that, to God without words. And so I say it's a conversation between God and I, and it begins with hearing the word, capital W, and speaking the words, prayer, but ultimately that that conversation enters into the intimacy of, of your own heart in, in the contemplative and the last step of the process. Hmm. But, but anyways, I, more than anything, I just like... It's just been interesting, because I'm learning as I go along. It's been interesting to see how grounded, and it, in the scriptures it is. And the other thing I wanted to discuss with you, because now I have two different claims regarding why the early church used allegorical interpretation. And what is allegorical interpretation? I'll give you an example, because Jesus does it in John 3, when he says, the Son of Man will be lifted up, mm -hmm. Like Moses lifted up the serpent on the stick. So he's using Moses and the serpent on a stick as metaphor, is that? For his own death and resurrection. Mm -hmm. That's an allegorical interpretation. And they, because in, in, in the story of Moses lifting up the, the stick is, is the deeper truth of Christ. Right. And that's exactly when the early church used allegorical interpretation. Often, it was with the Old Testament passages and finding Christ in those. But here's the two competing, not competing claims, because they're not mutually exclusive. They could both be true. One is that, you know, one reason they started using allegorical interpretation was, how do you interpret these really hard, difficult, some, sometimes nasty, sure. horrible passages in the Old Testament? Sure. How do you appropriate that? For Christian faith. Well, you interpret it as somehow a metaphor for Christ. But then this other claim is they're using the allegorical method because Christ, the experience of the living Christ, is the whole reason you're going to the scriptures, ultimately. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting as well. Those could both be true. They could both be wrong. But... <laughs> But they, those could both be true. I mean, there could be more than one reason why they embrace the allegorical method the way they did. I, I mean, with, you and I have talked about this in a podcast about allegorical interpretation. Yeah. That they can go off the rails. I mean, they'll find Christ. They, they can fit Christ into anything. Sure. Um, but there's still boundaries. Right? Like? The law of love and the rule of faith. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, you know, if, you're, if your interpretation is outside the bounds of either one of those, then go back. Yeah. Which is where, you know, it starts with some of those <laughs> nasty, hard, 
whatever passages yeah. that on the surface Joshua. <laughs> yeah, may lead me toward violence against my neighbor. Right. Well, that's doesn't uphold the law of love. Yeah, so, so that's not a valid reason. Try something else yeah. with that. Um, you know, and if I end up in a in a place where I've imagined um, you know, God with, you know, a body and hands or something like this mm-hmm. or Christ as a subordinate you know, to the to the Father or something like that, then I've got the rule of faith coming in. Yeah. And Setting um, up and checking that. me mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Um, what I think is important just to say it's not, you know, willy nilly anything that you get from even that grounding of scripture counts in some way. Yeah. Because the tradition also bounds uh, mystical encounters within the test is the community. Uh huh. Right? And so, and scripture is understood as a community, right? It's a community of voices. Right. Um, you know, through this long, long history of these texts um, formulating this canon. Um, so that's a community. So does it fit within that bounds? And that those experiences, that knowledge, that wisdom that you gain through some mystical encounter are rightfully shared with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's part of the balance as well. Yeah. You know? Which is when you come back with kind of, you know, God God told me X. Mm. You know, well, let's see what that is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and does that fit within the things that we know that God does say or point people Reveal, to through scripture? Yeah. yeah. Right. Or is that like some hunch or some instinct or something else? Or are you using God to validate your own idiosyncrasy? Yeah. God told me to hate so and so. Right. Yeah. That's not God. That's right. something. That's I mean, that's just you know, yeah. it's easy. But. So, but yeah, I just thought that was interesting, and thought we might talk about that a little bit. But that was really it. So what's on your mind, Charlotte? Well, I'm going to bring something so much less useful and so much more toxic (laughs) to the plate. Uh Because one of the things, you know, I keep seeing, and God bless them. You know, I would never know about, like, some Christian extremism and Mm -hmm. the worst parts of Christianity if other people, and particularly progressive types, weren't, like, bringing them up to, like, kind of dunk on them. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is fun. I'm not really opposed to it, but I'm also wonder about how much we amplify that kind of stuff by picking it it up. But one thing that I've been seeing recently is a lot of this kind of um, Christian masculinity stuff. So these guys who are, and there seems to be a lot of intersection with the kind of incels or the men going their own way movement, but kind of reclaiming the alpha male. Okay. But it's couched within the language of Christianity, okay. which is so interesting given what I think I know about Jesus yeah. from the scriptures. But so, for instance, this is, um, this is in October, so you've got some time to <laughs> um, get yourself registered. This is literally just called the Patriarch Convention. 
patriarch convention. And base and all of this language around reading this is, you know, dominate your wife, dominate oh. life. You know, women want, need, and crave patriarchal dominance. What? Healthy, authentic, positive dominance from you. This is leadership, authority, vision, and passion. Nothing else and nothing less will cut it. A happy woman is a submissive woman who trusts, respects, and obeys your authority as the leader and king of your family. So if you go to this conference, it's like three or four days. Um, What does it say? It's guaranteed to increase your toxic masculinity by 500%. And you can also, if you... If you do sign up for the convention, um, all of them, all tickets, which are like three thousand dollars. Really. But if you sign up, you can bring a friend for free. And says a lot of guys use that to bring, you know, one of their brothers with them. But it says you can also use your plus one ticket to send your woman. Your woman. Yeah, that's already off to a good start. You can send your woman for state of the art wife training that happens at the same weekend exclusively for women. And it says, this is a quote. This is, this is a promotional for this. It says, we have the best mansplainers in the world, ready to increase her greatness, shed fat, and boost her femininity by over 500%. Again with the 500. They're really leaning into it. Though. Yeah. Helping make her the best and most submissive wife ever. So, and this, you know, it's all this fatherhood and masculinity are under an all-out attack. And you say they're Christians? Yeah. So the key speakers, there's like five key speakers for this event, and at least three of them are pastors. This has to be tied with the whole complementarian Yeah, and these group. guys are all like over 50 and dressing like John Cena or undercover cops. It's kind of the same look. But this kind of like, or maybe they're like, they look like bail bondsmen. But this weird idea of what like strength is. Some of these pastor folks in it, they think that this kind of, what they're admitting or calling toxic masculinity is biblical masculinity. Yeah. But what what do they mean? Do they say what, other than... They are um, intentionally anti-feminist. Okay. They are. <clears throat> um, well, it's a patriarch. Yeah. So. Convention. It's the man is the head of the household. You know, then expecting complete obedience from no democratic his process woman. in the relationship. Yeah, his woman and the children. Mm. I bet these people are a joy to live with. Oh. But I bring it up, well, because it's just gross, (laughs) but also it is at such odds with what we have in anywhere in the New Testament, even when we have those lines from like the household codes about like women be submissive to your husband or something. If, if you even want to play with what are the depiction of men in the gospels even in the epistles, these aren't warrior kings. No, they're getting beat up all the time. and Yeah, yeah. 
Um, they're not fighting back. No. And this has got, you know, this is, like, has imprints of that kind of CrossFit culture happening in here. Mm-hmm. The entertainment for the event is, like, basically UFC fights and bull riding and stuff. Like, this hyper-masculine idea. Uh-huh. And yet, we worship a Lord and Savior who willingly submitted to death for his friends right. was ultimate and that's I guess the ultimate cuck in their mind I mean <laughs> he is because he Christ is so willing to put it's as he loved his friends so much he loved yeah. them till the end and this is how that was done was by the self-emptying mm-hmm. by this purely mm-hmm. submissive self um, giving Self, literally self-sacrificial love for, for other people. Yeah. And this has, that one pastor guy, that Michael Foster guy, is dressed like Thanos. I mean, this weird, can't, it's a Marvel bad guy. Oh, okay. But it's like this, like he's got like this whole infinity gauntlet thing going on. Like he's like champion of the universe. Like the comic book character yeah. fantasy of power. Right. That's not what our religion is about. No, and here's the irony. The weakness that Christ shows on the cross is supposed to be a, a show of strength. Right. Um, you know, as Paul said, his his weakness is greater than any human strength. By the sheer fact that once they succeed in putting him to death, being he's alive again. Right. Even killing him is doing nothing to him. Right, exactly. As, and is what we're supposed to believe you about only, ourselves as well. That we participate in that power yes. through, through love, not force. There is nothing you can do to me. Right. But it's through love. Right. Not, there's nothing you can do to me because I'm all jacked up and ripped from the gym. <laughs> and making and my punch you. wife or girlfriend go to classes <clears throat> somewhere. The church has always had a problem with patriarchy, going back to its Roman influence. Sure. Right? The paterfamilias. Sure. I mean, there's clear indications in the gospel that there's a trajectory towards, as Paul said, in Christ there's neither male nor female that um, transcends these different uh, ways we carve up humanity. But the church obviously grabbed onto the Roman idea of the paterfamilias as the head of the family and so on. And I guess you're seeing that in some of the household codes too. Yeah, and we see some of that, I think, <clears throat> in the impulse with uh, some of like the pagan converts to Christianity. With There's a problem with Christianity in that it doesn't have a fertility god uh-huh. or a warrior god, uh-huh. right? And so some of that gets hoisted onto Christ. Okay. Right? And so we see these, like, ripped depictions of oh, Christ, Jesus, too. Yeah. yeah. When he's up there with his six-pack abs on the cross and whatnot, you wonder how the wood could hold Didn't this man. Didn't you show me a picture the other day of Jesus all ripped on the cross? I don't, I don't, maybe. It's one of my favorites. It's the strangest things. I know. What For a man know? who ate nothing but fish and some bread. Where is he getting this muscle mass? If nothing, like his his calf should be pretty built up because he did all that walking. Did all that walking. Yeah, but, but, they, I mean, he, looks like but a he wasn't. Builder. He wasn't lifting, bra. 
Um, except for lifting his eyes to the hills from whence came his help. It's only lifting my man did. So, no, I mean, it's just, but you need this warrior king kind of figure. To satisfy, yeah. What was already, yeah, this patriarchal toxic kind of ideal. You know, so, I mean, we can point to those sort of early cultic things. I mean, I don't, you know, I was thinking this week, people, there's a theme of kind of making a, a monster or a scapegoat out of Constantine and deciding, like, he invented Christianity or something. I mean, you hear this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. like... Um, you know, it's like Constantine came and wrote the Nicene Creed. That didn't happen. Yeah, I don't like that. But the that mythology around, I need you know, I need you, God, if you help me win this battle. Right. Thing, that I think Cairo. is way more problematic yeah. than anything else going on. Um, so Constantine, if you don't know, was not. Uh, follower of Christ, was not a Christian emperor, and then he has a dream that if he puts up, what was it, Cairo, this image of Christ, he'll win the battle, and so they fly this flag, I guess, or something? Standard, yeah. Standard, 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 yeah. And they win. And so he converts to Christianity and makes the rest of the the whole state, the whole empire do as well, is kind of the idea. Yeah. That's the general notion. Yeah. And, and there's, like, fraught with issues there. But then we have this kind of first, I think, really notion that, like, God is involved in human battles and picking sides. and In Christianity, you mean. Yeah. Not in the, you see it in sure, the sure, old sure. Yeah. Is this warrior fact? Yeah, because before that, you couldn't even... Christians really did were not soldiers. That's right. Yeah, they were, by and large, pacifists. Yes. Yeah. Which I guess is, you know, a huge problem for these guys because that's not the culture they want. No. Well, and I mean, it was an early kind of slam on Christianity from the Romans, even to call it this kind of a woman's religion. Yeah. Right? I mean, it attracts widows and orphans. Mm Mm-hmm. And... The marginalized, the weak. Yeah. Yeah. And is it for this other, this bro class? (laughs) And so I guess what's a bro to do? Rather than actually submit to Christ mm-hmm. and understand that power acts through love, not through some kind of force, dominance yeah. or force, then you just bend Christianity to the culture you're already in. Yeah. Here's the thing for me. If you want to talk about actual biblical masculinity... What would that be? Because, I mean, again, you've got, in Christ, there's neither male nor female. Yeah, I think it's already a mistake. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm with you on that. But if we were just going to talk at, like, I'm kind of wondering how to be a man, or at least the part of what I should reject or not, then there are role models. I mean, even aside from Jesus in the gospel, Right? So, I mean, how does Jesus act? He's encountering people. He listens. Uh-huh. I mean, that these guys would think that would be submissive. Because right? they're listening, yeah. He's listening to all kinds of people. He encounters and listens to women. 
there's some women who in the Gospels who sass him, uh-huh. and he's like receptive and even kind of affirms what what they say. Yeah, you know, the Canaanite woman. He t- comes to women as the first witnesses of the resurrection. Uh-huh. Because everything about him is turned on its head. He's rejecting the whole patriarchy in in Yeah. In that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's calling on others to do the same, I think, by that example. Um, I, I don't know how you jump from that vision of this guy from the things that he says to To what you're seeing with this Yeah. Of course, you know, they're gonna pull all their the biblical source material from the Old Testament. They've got to. Yeah. It's not going to be from Christ. No. No. Look, you want a male role model, I'll tell you. Grizzly Adams. <laughs> I love this man. <laughs> he's just a good guy. And he's always doing good things. Uh, very open. You know, he's embracing all the strangers that come across the mountain. Mm-hmm. Putting out fires and stuff, but he's not a. As, as Paul, did Paul say this? Or Jesus? Lording it over others, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you need a male. He's a model of hospitality. Exactly. Great yeah. way to put it. Yeah, usually yeah. which is a woman's role. According to these guys, I'm kidding. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, you, you say hospitality, I think Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, which is a women's role. Abraham doesn't actually do anything, do anything in that story. He runs. It's an extraordinary story to call it the hospitality of Abraham and Sarah, which she's in the kitchen the whole time. And he's just chilling with his visitors. Mm-hmm.